turned my mic off. I knew I was going to do it. Uh, so if I was to ask you all to text in the answer to this question, what does a Christian look like? My guess is a couple things. Uh, the first is that we would have some standard responses. Most of us uh, identify as followers of Jesus, and we have some sort of biblical worldview, and that would probably add to some of our answers and make them there be a common thread through um, our answers. But I also suspect uh, that a second thing would be true, and that would be that we would have wildly different answers when it comes to the activity of Christians. And the reason I say that is I meet with a lot of people and I ask them, are you a follower of Christ? And they say, yes. And I say, what does that mean? And they give me their answer. And then I say, what does a Christian look like? And then they give me wildly different answers. Uh, for some people, they would say that a Christian um, looks like somebody who tells people about Jesus. Other people would say a Christian is someone who helps the oppressed. Uh, some people would say a Christian is someone who is financially generous. A Christian is somebody who attends church on a regular basis. They would have all kinds of answers in and around the activity of Christians. And my thesis is that the answer to that question would be centered on our personal preferences of the things that we find the most important for a Christian to be doing. Now, here's the thing. All of those things are actually, in a sense, true. Christians do tell people about Jesus. We do uplift the oppressed. We are financially generous. We do attend churches. But none of those things are really an answer to the question of what does a Christian look like. And the reason is being a Christian is not an activity. And looking like a Christian is not an activity either. So what we're going to do is over the course of the next 10 weeks, we're going to look at this famous passage of scripture in Galatians called the fruit of the spirit. And this passage moves past the activities that so many of us are concerned about to the heart of what a Christian is and what a Christian looks like. We're going to look at what the Bible calls the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to do is this week, we're going to do an overview. We're going to kind of fly over the whole thing. And then the next next nine weeks, we're going to look at nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. So if you have a Bible uh, with you, you can flip, tap, or swipe your way to Galatians 5. Um, I'm going to pray us in, and then we're going to look at this passage in Galatians 5. So Heavenly Father, um, we do pray that as we look at this idea of the fruit of the Spirit, that you would give us a picture of what it is that a follower of Jesus looks like. Um, that as we work through this, that we would be people who would fall more and more in love with you and that you would turn us inside out um, in our, our posture toward other people. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So Galatians 5, starting in verse 13, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole love or the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. So this right here is the premise of Galatians. The premise of this letter that Paul wrote is this. Jesus has set you free. 
And because Jesus has set you free, you are called to be a free person. And I want you to let that settle in for a second because when you get it, it changes everything. And so many followers of Jesus don't feel free. So many people look at Christians and they don't think that they are free people, but we are called to be free. Free from what? Well, inside each one of us, we have a fallen nature. And that fallen nature demands obedience to live in ways that are fundamentally unloving. But Jesus has set us free from that sin nature so that we can love. Outside of us, Satan, who is a very real supernatural being, he exists, he coaxes and tempts us to be, again, self-focused and unloving, but Jesus has set us free from Satan. And then all around us, we live in a world that is itself broken and pressing in on us, but Jesus has set us free from that pressure. What that means is, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you believe in him, you have been set free, and there are no strings attached to that freedom. Because Jesus lived a sinless life, because he died, because he was buried, because he rose again from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, you are set free. Your sin nature is crucified, Satan has been defeated, and the broken world will one day be made new. You are totally free and you are called to live and love like a free person. But here's the rub. The way we tend to think about freedom is it's all about me. Free means I can do whatever I want. But that's not freedom. In fact, Paul here in this passage would call that facade an opportunity for the flesh. What does that mean? Well, we all have this flesh, and it doesn't mean our physical body. It means the sin nature part of us, and we all have this. And he says, we can give our flesh an opportunity to abuse the freedom that Jesus has given us. And, and there's a sense in which, this is the crazy part, you, you can kind of do whatever you want, because there are no strings attached. When Jesus set you free, there are no strings attached. You can do what you want, but what we'll see in this passage is someone who's placed their faith in Jesus, what you want will change. It's going to start to change. Instead of living for me, for self, we begin to live for we. And I know that's grammatically incorrect, but I wanted it to rhyme, okay? <laughs> Let me read this passage again. Think about that. For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you'll be consumed by one another. See what he says? He says, we are to serve one another in love, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Does that sound familiar? That was like the core of the Mosaic law that God gave to the Israelites. They were to love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, love their neighbors as themselves. And then Jesus said that was the greatest of all the commandments. It's why in our mission statement at RIV, we say that we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like him. That's at the core of our mission as a church. And so this entire discourse about the fruit of the Spirit starts here. He says the Spirit is going to do something in you. And there's a way to abuse the freedom that you have in Jesus or to use the freedom that you have in Jesus. You can make it about yourself and do whatever you want and end up biting and devouring one another. <laughs> or you can make it about God and about 
others and loving your neighbor as yourself, which is your true calling. That's the setup. Now, Paul, the guy who wrote this, he makes a pivot. He says, I say then, in other words, that's why I had to go cover all that, right? (laughs) Because he's basing the next thing he's about to say on the thing that he just said. He says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What he's basically saying here is you were called to be free, and yet now you have these two paths in front of you, a way to abuse that freedom that you have in Christ, or use what you have in Christ uh, for the sake of loving others, to fulfill your calling. And inside of you, you got two voices yelling at you. (laughs) They're each telling you to take a different path. They're opposed to one another. They desire different things. And that is not going to go away until glory. That, those voices are not going to change until glory. That means you, you have this decision to make on a daily basis. Am I going to walk this or am I going to walk that? The flesh or the spirit? Now, here's an encouraging bit I love in this. He says, for the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Do you see the encouraging bit? What he's saying is, your desires as a follower of Jesus are going to begin to change, and you're going to feel that battle, because every time you walk down that path of the flesh, you're going to go, ah, it doesn't fit or or sit right, right? You're like, you know, because your desires are changing. Your heart is changing. The Holy Spirit is working from inside of you. And this is huge. This is what Martin Luther calls a simul justus peccator, which means we are simultaneously sinners and saints until that day in glory we're with Jesus. But I love Paul's challenge. He's like, listen, here's the solution. Walk by the Spirit. He says, be led by the Spirit. But what does that actually even mean? Well, if you go back in our last series when we went through um, the Apostles' Creed, we we did a bunch of messages on the Holy Spirit. You can go back and look at those. But here's a summary. In John 15, uh, we're told that the Holy Spirit bears witness about Jesus. We're told the Holy Spirit is our comforter in 1 Thessalonians. We're told that in Romans that the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And, and in Jude, we're told that we don't know how to pray, that he is praying for us and he helps us to pray. In Titus, we're told that he renews us. That, and we're told in Romans that he fills us with joy and hope, that he convicts us of sin and points us to Jesus. What that means is the Holy Spirit is God himself. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he dwells inside of you actively. And he will always point to Jesus. As he's comforting you, he's pointing to Jesus. As he's giving you hope, he's pointing to Jesus. As he's giving you joy, he's pointing to Jesus. And the context is here that the Holy Spirit is always about another. He is always pointing us toward Jesus. Now, there's a passage in Philippians that a lot of people misquote. Um, and it's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit will give us peace. And sometimes they say, okay, that means anytime I am at peace with something, I know that I'm doing the right thing. Have you ever heard someone say that? The problem is, have you ever met someone who feels really at peace about doing completely the wrong thing? That's the battle inside of us. Often my desires are at odds with what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. So what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? 
Well, look at the last verse I just read. He said, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What does that mean? Well, in the Galatians context, he's talking about the Mosaic law, the 613 law, uh, rules and regulations given to the Israelites in the Old Testament that they had to, to follow. And most of us are not running around, although some Christians do, but most of us are running around telling everybody they got to follow all of that law. But what we do is we apply little L laws to our lives. Little L laws are any time we say, I must do this to be accepted by God. I must do this to be accepted by God my parents. I must do this to be accepted by my spouse. I must do this to be accepted by culture. Anytime we do that little formula, we are adding a little L law into our lives. And he says, if we are led by the Spirit, we're not under the law. And I think we can broaden it to all of those laws. So what does this even mean? I know that's the third time I've asked the question. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, what we'll see is that the answer is not in checkboxes, no matter how much we want it to be. We want a list. Give me the plan. Tell me how to walk by the Spirit. Check, 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 check. But what we see is it's not that. It's fruit. What we can do is look at our lives and see which path we're walking on based on the fruit in our lives. Now, we have to be really careful because remember, these aren't checks boxes. They're diagnostic tools to help us evaluate which path we're walking, okay? So Paul now gives us two lists. And so we're gonna spend most of our time on the first list here. And so, gotta warn you, this one's a doozy. Here's the list. Uh, Galatians 5, verse 19. Uh, 19, yeah. It says this. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I've warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what Paul says here is this stuff is obvious. What does he mean by that? He said this is obviously out of step with the Spirit. In other words, this is baseline Christian teaching, right? For a follower of Jesus, this is the basic stuff we shouldn't even have to argue about. Scripture is clear on this, and all of these things have at their center, you'll notice, yourself. They are the path of self. I've taken these, this long list and broken into four categories. Sexual sin, religious sin, relational sin, and party sin. Okay, so let's look at those. Let's do them really quick. Sexual sin. This is an easy category, but a hard category in our culture to hear. If our goal is self, then it should be easy to kind of figure out, if this fleshly path is self, we should be able to figure out what falls into that category. And this is what our culture tells us right now. Our culture tells us sexuality is all about self-orientation. It's about self-expression. It's about being self-directed, that the core of our sexuality is me. We're also told in our culture that, that to be truly fulfilled, one must be sexually active. Not only that, they must be sexually satisfied. And I would actually challenge every single one of those assumptions from a scriptural basis. I would challenge us that sex is, according to Scripture, a gift and it's a joy, but it's not an end. If it was an end, it would actually say terrible things about Jesus, who was single, Mother Teresa, 
a whole bunch of my single friends that I know um, who are not married and have never been over the course of life. And the Apostle Paul actually goes so far as to say it would actually be better for us to be single. So what is a non-self-oriented sexual worldview? It says that we are focused on others. Not others, other. There's a guy named Nate Collins. He wrote on this. He says, the Christian worldview is that we are monosexual, which means our orientation is toward one person, our spouse inside of our covenant marriage. And we are focused on them. We are focused on their pleasure, their satisfaction, their needs, not on our own. There was a report that came out this last week that actually said followers of Jesus um, who regularly attend church and say that they have a, a personal relationship with Jesus actually report the highest sexual satisfaction numbers of anyone in our culture. If anyone tells you that the Bible is restrictive on these things, we report a higher satisfaction than the rest of culture. So let's look at the, that's the broad category. So let's quickly look at the, the three words that he uses. He says, sexual immorality. This is the Greek word pornea, um, where we get the word porn. And it's the junk drawer term for any sexual expression outside of a covenant marriage relationships. And it's interesting. Paul starts there, and then he moves to moral impurity. Well, what's moral impurity? Well, that's unclean thoughts, words, and deeds. In other words, dirty mind, dirty mouth, right? And notice how those two things are linked together, and they're very self-oriented. If you think that you need to be self-satisfied with your sexuality, you're going to be constantly thinking about it, constantly talking about it, and it's going to flow out from there. Promiscuity, he says. Now, this may seem, again, like it's the same thing, but they're all building on one another. Promiscuity, in the Greek context, means someone who is open and brazen in flaunting sexual immorality. And again, that makes sense, right? This is all obvious. If we're supposed to be oriented toward one person, our spouse, with our sexuality, then anything outside of that, flaunting that, would obviously be a sin. Let's move on to the second category, religious sin. He says, idolatry. This is any time we take anything in our lives and put it on the throne instead of Jesus. And a lot of times the stuff we put on the throne instead of Jesus is really good stuff, right? Our career aspirations or, or even relationships or our kids or success. We tend to put those things on the throne of our lives and they're great things. They're just terrible gods. That's idolatry. And then sorcery. Most of us are like, well, we can skip that one, right? We actually, it's interesting. This is the Greek word uh, pharmakeia, which is where we get the word pharmacy. And it was drug-induced worship. And you may think that we don't have to talk about that, but I get that email at least once a year. Hey, man, if I take shrooms and worship God, is that better? Like, and so I'll get like, <laughs> no. Um, now, now, the next category, interestingly enough, and it makes sense, is relational sin. And this is the biggest category. This has got the most stuff in it, which makes sense because it's about not being about self, but being about others. Let's work our way through this. He says, hatred. Hatred is a contempt towards someone or something that becomes absolutely all-consuming, right? You know this is something you struggle with when all day, every day, all you can think about is that person or that thing or that issue when that's the only thing you're ever posting about online and you, have, you cannot stand it and you're stuck there, that's hatred. If it makes your blood boil. He says strife. That's when the attitude of hatred moves to a clash and a division between people. Jealousy. Jealousy is a good thing or a bad thing. God's called a jealous God, right? Like if you hit on my wife, 
I would have good jealousy, right? But you can't be jealous of my wife. That's bad jealousy. See how that works? There's going to be good jealousy, bad jealousy. And then there's outbursts of anger. This is uncontrolled temper, a short fuse. We flare up on anything or everything. Selfish ambition. This is an interesting one because notice it doesn't just say ambition. Ambition is actually a good thing. It can be a good thing. It's morally neutral. But selfish ambition is when you're so focused on what you want and what you want to get and your ambitions that you will bulldoze or step over other people in order to get it. And that is, according to Paul, an obvious sin. Now, I want to talk about the next two together because they kind of work together. And I'm concerned about this one in a lot of Christian circles. Dissensions, which is sin that blows up relationships, and factions, this is when people start taking sides against one another. And can I just say, this is the defining sin of the pandemic era. Christians, not the rest of the world, the rest of the world does this too, but I don't care. Christians have hatred and strife toward one another. It's led to outbursts of anger. It leads to dissensions and ultimately factions. And there is no place for this as a follower of Jesus. It's interesting that throughout the New Testament, Paul has a specific sin he calls out a lot. It's called division. And he said when someone is divisive in a church, in a church context, they're to be warned once, warned twice, and then kicked out. He like gives specific checklists. This is how you do it because divisiveness is so important. It's a big sin and of course it is. If walking in the spirit is focusing on others in love, we should be known as a place that has diverse views and we're able to coexist with one another rather than letting it divide us. Finally, he says, envy. Envy is, is jealousy literally on steroids. Not literally, I guess figuratively on steroids. Um, it's basically saying, I not only um, am jealous of what you have, but I want to take it from you so you don't have it and I have it. That's envy. Now, let's move on to party sin. He gives us two things. He starts with drunkenness. And I think we all kind of know what drunkenness is, but I want to make a little point here. Having a beer with dinner, cool, fine. Scripture actually talks about alcohol as a blessing in, in, in moderate context. Getting plaster at Luha's every weekend, not cool, Right? Drunkenness, the idea here is a habitual getting drunk, and I think it can apply to other drugs too. When we're constantly under the control of substances, we're self-medicating, and we're relying on alcohol or drugs or whatever to bring us joy, to hide our pain, and and that is a self-oriented thing. And then he goes, carousing. (laughs) What's carousing? Well, other translations translate this orgies. But the broad context here is when drunkenness turns into an all-out, I don't know, frat party, right? That's the crossing. By the way, these two are examples of good godly things being used in an ungodly way. Both our sexuality and our alcohol are gifts from God, but we tend to use them wrongly. And then I love what Paul does. He wraps up his list by saying, oh, and anything similar, (laughs) <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I think you guys are getting it, right? Because he's just kind of riffing on this list. And then he says, I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That should shake us a little bit. Because he started by saying all of this is obvious. And then he gave us a list that I guarantee every single one of us can find ourselves on somewhere. And then he says, I'm warning you. Those who practice such things 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is he saying that this is a checklist? Got to do this. Can't do this. Can't do this. Can't do this. And if we, we're at fear of losing our salvation. But no, that would be inconsistent with the entire book of Galatians. He's not saying that Christians that fall in these areas or trip up or, or stumble or are or, or, or at risk of losing their salvation. He's saying that people are habitually and continually living lives like this and without their conscience striking them or any minute change in their life may be betraying that they aren't followers of Jesus. That they've never trusted in him. Because someone who has the Holy Spirit in their lives will show something different in their life over the course of their life. He calls it fruit. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now I'm going to spend less time on this because for the next nine weeks we're going to cover all these one bit at a time but I do want to highlight a couple things. First, it's really important to get this. The word fruit in this context is singular. And this is actually really super important. It's not like love is an apple, right? And joy is a passion fruit because joy is passionate. I don't know. And peace is a banana, right? It's, it's like these are each different fruits. This is a fruit. What he's saying is this is what God does in your life. And this is how the Holy Spirit expresses himself in your life is continually over the course of your life, you become more and more like these things in increasing measure. Let's work our way through these. Love. Gosh, this is our motivator. This is the path that Jesus has laid out for us. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, and the greatest of these is love. This is what the Holy Spirit bubbles up inside of us when we give our lives to him because of Jesus. And because he loves us, we love other people. It begins to show more and more in our lives joy. This isn't happiness, some kind of fickle happiness. It's that in spite of our circumstances, when things are not going our way, when life is difficult, we still are able to have joy because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Peace. In Philippians, in that passage that people misquote all the time, we're told that peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And this isn't merely the absence of conflict. One way you can translate peace is completeness. We don't need anything else other than Jesus so we can live at peace. When things are going crazy in our lives, we can be at peace because we have Jesus. Patience. Oh, can't wait to hit that one. You know what patience literally means? Long-suffering. You know what that means? Suffering for a long time. (laughs) And we tend to think of patience as tolerance, but it's so much bigger than that. God is patient. He is patient with us in not wiping us out and snapping his fingers and throwing us into hell because of our sin. Instead, he quite literally, Jesus went to the cross to handle it for us because God is patient toward us. Kindness. This isn't niceness. Niceness is a Midwestern virtue. It's kindness. This is being warm and considerate to others, treating them how Jesus has treated us. Goodness is when we reflect the image of God. Because everyone in this world reflects the image of God somehow because we're all creating the image of God in those times where people, not even Christian people, any person is, is good. They're reflecting who God is and it's just having that happen more and more and more in our lives. Faithfulness. This is a belief that Jesus um, has said what is true 
And because he has said what is true, you trust him. And you set him up as the standard in your life. And even when you don't fully understand what he's telling you to do, you do it anyway. Gentleness. This one's not weakness, especially for you dudes out there. It's a strength of character that allows you to let your guard down with people. That's what that is. Self-control. This is the strength of character that leads you to make tough decisions when the fleshy part of you is telling you you should have a different goal. It's that battle inside of you. Now, I'm not sure if you caught this. You probably did. The fruit of the Spirit has a very different orientation, doesn't it, than the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are all about me. The fruit of the Spirit is all about others. It's all about reflecting Jesus to others. Now listen to what Paul says about this. He says, the law is not against such things. I love this. He's basically saying, even those Christians who tell you that you should be under the law, they'll like this. <laughs> the law is not against any of these things. So many people think that the, the key to pleasing God is, okay, now here's what I got to do. I got to gut myself up and do this stuff. I got to be more lo loving. Have you ever tried to force yourself to be more patient? My friend Joby described it this way. He was actually teaching a message on Fruit of the Spirit recently. And if you're on Instagram, I posted it this week because it was great. He basically said, if I've got this table here and I just take like an apple and I nail it to this table, that doesn't make this an apple tree, right? It, it is not about forcing the fruit onto our lives. It's the fact that God has done something in our lives that is producing some new fruit. And it's fascinating how much of the Bible talks about our spiritual maturity as plants. It's a lot. There's a lot of verses. Let me just give you a couple. In, in the book of Psalms, it says this, Psalm 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. This is where his delight is. And he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears fruit in its season and its leaves do not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Hold on to that and flip all the way to the other end of your Bible. I'm just giving you some bookends. First Peter says this, since you have been purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly because, this is why, you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. You're going to see over and over and over in scripture, our spiritual maturity is described as plants. Notice what these two passages just did. The psalmist says that the tree bears fruit that comes from God. Why? Because the roots go down deep through the instruction of the Lord. Peter says the imperishable seed of the word of God is planted inside of us so that we grow in sincere brotherly love for one another, which is our fruit. And so this is what struck me this week as I was working on this message. I'm like, why does the Bible use agricultural terms so much to describe our spirituality? Here's why. Spiritual growth, like a plant, is gradual it is seasonal, and it is subject to its environment. And the only part that we have even a 
tiny bit of control over is the environment. And we don't have all the control over that, right? I had drinks with a couple um, earlier this week uh, from Riff and a couple days ago, and they basically told me about how they started attending Riff um, and then they were just before the pandemic, and then they were online uh, during the whole pandemic, and then they got into a life group in the pandemic, and each step of the way, as they spent more time in the Word of God, in church and in community and talking to other people, they found themselves changing from the inside out. The Holy Spirit was transforming them because their environment was important. Now, why do I say all this? Well, let's be honest for a second. If you were to check your phone's usage status, how much time would it say you're spending on social media each week? What about BuzzFeed? What about MSNBC? What about Fox News? And how does that compare to your time engaging with the Word? And I don't mean just going to church. I mean, just spending time talking to people about this stuff, engaging in a life group, in community, uh, with the Word of God. See, here's the thing. A friend of mine just recently said something that really struck me. He said the people in his church are being discipled more by cable news and social media than they are the Bible. That's where our roots tend to be going deep down. No wonder we're divisive right now. No wonder we have dissensions now. No wonder we have factions now. Because uh, no wonder we have sexual sin and relational sin and religious sin and party sin because our roots are going deep down into the wrong things. And that's obvious. Because here's what you do to see which path you're walking on. It's not a checklist. You just look at the path. You're like, Does my, is my life described by sexual immorality, hatred, strife, outbursts of anger, dissensions, and factions? Or is my life described by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? When you begin to see more of one than the other in your life, you know who is discipling you, and you know which path you're walking on. Now, I want to stop here, because right now you might be going, oh, crap. Because this stuff is like a punch in the gut, and I don't want you to be discouraged. Because remember what I said earlier? Why are we described as agriculture? Because you can only control your environment a little bit, right? And then there's two other pieces. What are they? Agriculture is gradual and it is seasonal. That's why you can't look at a person and check the boxes and see whether they're a Christian or not. You can't look at someone's life and go, I can check all this stuff off. Because it's going to take time with all of us. It's gradual. And we're going to screw up. It's seasonal. And you may have some seasons in your life where you have no control over how bad things are and your environment changes quite a bit. But it's seasonal. It's gradual. I remember Tim Keller saying that our spiritual growth is like a teenage pubescent boy. Bear with me here. And it's not about his stinky pits. <laughs> have you ever seen a boy that's like 5'2 and he has size 15 feet? <laughs> and what do you say about that kid? You're like, he'll grow into it, right? The rest of his body's going to catch up with his feet. You know what happens sometimes? Sometimes God's really working on your patience for a long time. But the other areas of your life, they suck. You'll grow into it. This is the promise that we have. 
the Holy Spirit will do this work in our life. And, and, and here's the thing. We're so tempted to go, okay, I need to do better. I need to be better. That's what our society says. It's all over in social media. Do better, be better. That's not what the scripture says. Look at verse 24 through 26 of this passage in Galatians. It says, now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I love this. What's the key? Belonging to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, you've placed your faith in him. The Holy Spirit lives in you. So just keep in step with him. And here's the thing, you're going to mess up and it's going to be okay. You just brush yourself off. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your mind in his word and, and he will turn your heart toward loving people. That's why way back in verse 16, Paul can say definitively, I love this part. I say then, walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. You see what he's saying? It's a foredrawn conclusion. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and he is going to transform you so that the fruit of the Spirit is more and more evident and it's going to take a long time and you are not going to see it completely until one day in glory when you're face to face with Jesus and then finally you're synced up with him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you that as his followers, we don't have a big ch checklist of things we gotta do, but that you have promised it has all been done in Jesus. And now you are gonna transform us from the inside out. And so we just pray that as much as we can, we'll control our environment, that we will walk in step with the Spirit and confess when we don't. And we just thank you that you will certainly transform us into the likeness of Jesus. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray all this in his name. Amen.